how to hire and retain the best tech talent in your company. What is the people factor and what's the necessary skill set for a board to thrive? And what we can learn about ESG and diversity and inclusion from Asia? Well, these are some of the questions that we'll explore today in this new episode of the VAB podcast that features our guest, Carmen Wee. She's a global C-suite HR leader with over 25 years of international business experience at a number of tech companies such as SAP, Ariba, and Aveva. And she's also a board member at HTX, Home Team Science and Technology Agency of Singapore, which is the first of its kind as a science and technology agency in the world that brings together science and engineering capability across the home team departments to transform the homeland security landscape and keep Singapore safe. She's paid out of Singapore where it is morning now, although it's night here in Sao Paulo, Brazil. So good morning, Carmen, and welcome to the VAB podcast. Good morning, Andrea. Thank you for inviting me to your program. Pleased to be here. It's a pleasure to have you here on the VAB podcast. But before getting to our chat, Carmen, let me remind our audience about the purpose of this podcast. Across the episodes, we will leverage on our guests' knowledge to learn with them about how you can become a better advisor and how you can accelerate your career and your business. Here's your host, Andrea Iorio speaking. I'm an Italian keynote speaker to more than 100 companies per year, focusing on digital transformation, leadership and innovation, and a best-selling author of two books in Portuguese. Because yes, I'm based out of Brazil, where I worked over the last 10 years as the head of Tinder in the region and as a chief digital officer at L'Oreal, and where I today teach at the executive MBA at Fundação Dom Cabral. So, to kick off our conversation, Carmen, I have today the great pleasure of chatting with you. And one thing that I didn't mention in your introduction is actually on purpose because I wanted to start off with that, which is you have recently published your first book. It is called From the Kampung to the Boardroom, My Personal Journey. And can you first explain better what a kampung is for whom doesn't know about it? And can you tell us more about this personal journey of yours? Thank you, Andrea. Um, the word kampung actually refers to a village. And it's a term that we use in Southeast Asia in countries like Malaysia and uh, Indonesia. And I grew up in a village uh, many years ago. And, um, you know, the book captures my journey, uh, you know, talking about my personal stories um, from where I came from and basically charting my professional career in HR more than 25 years ago. And so, you know, the book was actually capturing um, you know, some of the key learnings from a leadership standpoint um, of how I would like to um, do my part to articulate what future leadership could look like, given the context of, you know, the pandemic, the great attrition, and, um, you know, really the digital future we are grappling with right now. Um, so happy to be here to tell you more about my book. And, um, you know, I'm uh, another reason why I wrote the book is also to um, do something, you know, on a charitable front for the uh, special need community. So partial proceeds from the book will also go to two charities in Singapore, um, and they are looking to pro promote reskilling and employment opportunities for the special needs people in Singapore. So, um, you know, I got a lot of support from, you know, my network, and I'm happy to share more. Thank you. That's amazing, Carmen, especially when it's for such uh, an important purpose. Um and about your personal journey, so you were telling, you know, you came from a village and you developed yourself in a, in, a, in a great business women and had a great career and you're sitting on boards now. 
tell us a little bit more of how you got into HR and uh, how did you actually even recently pivoted on not only on HR in companies, but now sitting on boards. How it has been this personal journey of yours and what do you think what were the key uh, moments in that career? I think, you know, growing up in my village and subsequently moving to our first uh, flat, right, um, when I was, uh, you know, less than 10 years old uh, in public housing for the first time, that was a big, massive change because I come from a, a family where, you know, there's no family wealth, right? It's a very humble family. My father took on four jobs uh, to look after, you know, um, the four children that he has with a homemaker mother. And so, you know, from a young age, I, I realized that I have to uh, study very hard to be the first uh, university graduate in the family. And my, you know, my parents always emphasized uh, the importance of education to help us to break out, right, of our economic, uh, you know, background. And so um, I think, you know, as with a lot of Asian families, we know that um, education is very important. And so um, I know I, I spent many years, I mean, you know, studying, uh, making sure that I clear my exams, being responsible, um, because my, my dad had to put, you know, extra money for tuition for us. Um, and so, you know, uh, at the same time, more than studies, I was very active in school. I was a school prefect. I played sports, you know, for the, for the schools. Um, you know, I acted in drama and I did various things. I was in NCC as well. And so those formative years uh, in a convent uh, is an all-girls school for 10 years, <laughs> yes. built a lot of uh, leadership qualities, which, you know, um, were actually very useful when I ventured into the business space. And uh, when I finally graduated from, uh, you know, the National University of Singapore uh, with a degree in uh, social work and history, um, I actually became an accidental, you know, HR person because in my final year, I was, I, you know, I realized that, hey, I was not going to be a social worker, you know, I didn't quite. <laughs> see that as a uh, you know, future for myself. And I stumbled into an HR elective program, which all of us had to take in order to graduate from the US. Um, and so uh, I said, well, you know, this sounds interesting. Why don't I you know, explore uh, HR? And so I applied to various companies and my first job was with a government agency in HR. And, and my job was to really you know, go through the uh, uh, HIS uh, database of that uh, government agency and to write papers to uh, encourage right, more women to maybe have uh, you know, a career by thinking about how to introduce uh, childcare facilities uh, in the company and also to encourage more engineers to join the uh, <laughs> government agency. So now when you think about it, right, I mean, the issues have not changed, right? Getting more engineers to stay in the profession, right? And, uh, you know, uh, getting more same. women, right? Yeah, the same, right? Um, <laughs> but it's been so many years since then. And so that was how I started my accidental HR and career. And uh, over the next, uh, you know, few decades, I think I see my career in a few chapters. The first chapter, I would say the first uh, 10 years or so was really looking at how do you learn the basics of uh, HR, uh, you know, the growing into the regional markets in Indochina. So my company, uh, you know, I left, the government sector a few, uh, one year later to join the private sector in a fast-moving consumer goods company. They were looking to uh, open operations and factories in uh, Vietnam and uh, Myanmar during that time. So I had to go out to those countries to open up the operations, set up the processes, you know, hire all the people, get the factory going. Um, and so, you know, I, I would say the first 10 years, I really learned a lot about the basics. And then the next uh, 10 years, I you know I learned how to be a business partner. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, basically, you know, working with leadership team, growing the Asia Pacific markets, uh, learning to handle global projects. You know, working in multinational companies, dealing across cultures, leading uh, multicultural teams. And I would say the third chapter was, you know, something else. Uh, so yeah. So that was how I started, I would say, and how I went on to have two chapters at least. And let me add a third chapter, or at least uh, I can guess now a third chapter is opening in your career, and I'm very interested in it, which is sitting on boards and advising companies, not only on the HR side, but uh, on the strategic side. And uh, I'm very interested in this third chapter is we want to call it like that, because this gives you a double perspective. You have the HR background and now also sitting on boards. And I wanted to get your perspective about the skill set that you feel makes a great board, uh, either a board member or the sum of skill sets from board members that make a great board uh, as a whole. But I wanted to get your perspective on what we can call the people factor on boards, right? Based on your HR you know, profiling of so many peoples across the years. Now that you sit on boards, what do you think it takes to be successful when it comes to skill set to be a successful board member? So the point of entry uh, into boards really is around the value that they are looking for you to deliver. And so that was how I, you know, stepped into my first board role because the agency that uh, I'm representing, they were looking for HR, you know, expertise to actually set up a pioneer board and, uh, you know, from the private sector to really help them to uh, build up, scale up, right? And to, uh, you know, optimize the human capital of the agency. So I would say, first of all, you know, the functional expertise and the business experience that you bring is extremely critical. Um, and so that's really the first point of entry. And once you get uh, appointed to the board, then you must be able to demonstrate that value uh, to you know the agency um, at the board level and asking questions at the board level is very different from asking uh, questions in an executive role. I think first of all you ask very um, strategic questions that's related to um, you know the vision, the mission and I would say because I'm a HR leader, the values uh, of the uh, agency and uh, because I look at everything not just from a people lens but also from a, a business uh, angle, I'm able to bring uh, my extensive experience, you know, and in cultures, organizations of all types and sizes, both here in Singapore, Asia, and the global markets, um, depending on the issues that we may discuss over, you know, that period of the, the few years, right, where we have the board. Um, more importantly, because I, I sit not just on the board, there is a people committee. So the people committee provides a more detailed deep dive into the people challenges, the issues uh, and the topics, uh, both now and also the emerging topics like DE&I, uh, you know, that the agency may face, you know, encouraging, uh, you know, more succession talent, etc. And how do you encourage the young talent to grow, especially the female talent. So, so I think, you know, that's very important because every term that you have serves as a qualification perhaps for the next, right? So they may or may not renew, um, you know, your term depending on the value that you demonstrate. And because I've also said in advisory, you know, um, fortunately I've been, you know, able to renew that term. And right now, you know, there's also an ongoing uh, look, right? At, uh, you know, the current board, right? Um, so I think it's very important to deliver the value, build the effective relationships as well at the board level, 
so I spend you know time uh, you know building relationship with the the chairman uh, you know my fellow board members uh, the uh, CEO as well because I think to get things done it's not just showing up at the board meeting you know saying what you want to say and then after that disappear I think because you know I'm I've been in the HR space for a long time uh, you know in Asia as well right I think we know that uh, relationships are you know really the means through which we get things done and so um, building the relationship builds trust and collaboration and therefore you know we come from a board level to say and to share and to I would I would say journey with the uh, team together so I also have a one-to-one with the HR leader of the agency so that we also understand I mean you know some of the things that perhaps cannot be shared so formally right at board meetings and in the people committee meetings so that I also understand I think some of the challenges that they face and we are able to work together and I think that's very important and that is you know at least it's a value for me that you know I understand some of the nuances of uh, the challenges that they face so that I'm able to I think frame uh, some of the recommendations that I have as a board because I think we need to understand that you know coming from a board level the executive team takes what the board says seriously so whatever that yeah. we say needs to be very thoughtful right and not just uh, you know uh, guns blazing you know showing up board meetings <laughs> and to impose our views on them and I think that is important right um, and that's how we do business in Asia it's important to be sensitive I think to the but yet um, be able to put forth very thoughtful conditions you know, and, and considerations for them to think about. And I like this point. And first of all, by recapping, I like also the balance that you put between hard skills. You've started with those kind of saying, look, the board member must know a lot about the market, must, you know, have this, you know, kind of like uh, uh, hard skills and knowledge and, and all this. But at the same time, you ended with this soft skills that are very, very important as well. And uh, you mentioned Asia. And I wanted to jump on this uh, for a moment because I think Asia can teach us a lot about uh, issues like ESG, uh, diversity and inclusion, because maybe as a region has had to lead with these issues much earlier than in other regions and it has more sensitive issues related to that so i wanted to jump to the question what can asia teach us to the rest of the world to us in these fronts esg diversity and inclusion and all these issues i would say when you look at the um, history of asia in esg and dni um, i would say that we are lagging behind okay uh, the Western companies. Um, in a, you know, the uh, BCG report in 2020, I would say that versus 96 company, 96% of Western companies that are already thinking and have implemented some form of DNI strategy, only 58% of uh, Asian companies have actually, you know, developed some form of DNI. And so there's a bit of a catch up to do. Um, but notwithstanding that, I think that you know, because um, Asian companies, depending on, and there are many kinds of Asian companies, whether it be public listed, not-for-profit, family-owned uh, companies, and even government uh, entities, I think, you know, in Asia, uh, relationships are very important. And because of the uh, cultural values and the way, you know, the education system has set up, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Asian profile, 
Um, so the assumptions that we bring to businesses and how we engage with uh, the world um, and also with uh, business stakeholders, it's slightly different. I think there's a huge emphasis on relationships and relationships for not just the short term, but also, you know, the long term. So Asians spend a lot of time, uh, you know, building relationships, meeting face-to-face, -face, or at least, you know, now we have to do it virtually face-to-face. And we talk things through, and sometimes you know it takes time, and some sometimes you know the 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 Western countries perhaps you know things are more uh, straightforward, more direct, right? Um, you know the Asian way of doing business is a lot more nuanced, is a more indirect. So the further up north you go, it becomes more and more perhaps opaque and indirect, right? And then the more south you go, landing up with Australia is a lot more direct. So when somebody comes to Asia, they need to understand that you know it's slightly different. And so when you look at issue B and I and ESG, uh, let's talk about the E and I and B, right? In Southeast Asia, there's about 600 over a million people with a thousand over you know, dialects and uh, languages. I mean, it is as extensive and complex as it can get. And therefore, you know, there are many opportunities uh, for the Asian region to be a lot more thoughtful around how D and I you know, can play out because I think every company on this planet right now is trying to drive growth, trying to drive profitability, trying to drive, you know, how do you get the most out of a hybrid uh, workforce? And therefore, you know, Asian companies in Southeast Asia or even in North Asia need to be able to do that because with all the disruption that's going on and now we have a war, everything else has changed. Um, but what exactly is the lever, right? The lever is really leadership. And the leadership at the top level, starting with the board, is extremely important because I think sometimes, you know, companies, um, you know, um, boards leave it up to just the executive team to drive initiatives like DE and I, right? Um, but I would say that, you know, the, more, the most progressive companies put this on the board agenda and they drive it at the board level. And I've seen that at the board level, when there's ownership and when there's, um, you know, that serious intention to de develop this uh, strategy, DE&I and also ESG, then you know there's going to be traction, there's going to be measurement, there's going to be momentum. Now, as far as ESG is concerned, right now, obviously, I mean, Asia has many resources and therefore, you know, we need to ensure that we are also, you know, responsible as corporate citizens with regards to ESG. Um, and, you know, in many Asian boards, uh, this is a topic that's important. And I think that, you know, in public companies, they are looking to be accountable and all that. I would say that to a lesser extent in some of the not listed companies or perhaps some of the family-owned companies, they are still playing a bit of catch-up in terms of this profit, in terms of this topic. Now, what can they teach us? I would say that some of those that have been very progressive uh, some of the Korean companies, some of the Japanese companies, even and even some of the Australian companies. I think they bring the Asian flavor to how they work. ESG is not just a program, but really, you know, it, it, it goes into the way of life, right? That you want to cultivate, right? And it becomes the integration with life itself, right? For the employees, for the stakeholders, for the customers, and also for the suppliers. So I think, you know, they would spend a lot more time on the relational bit of it. I mean, more than just compliance, yeah. Definitely so. And I think when we look at uh, what, for example, the biggest private equities in the world, such as, you know, like Larry Fink sending a, a letter to all his invested companies and saying, look, I'm not going to invest in any other company that does not focus on ESG or at least complies to certain standards. 
Well, that's something that boards should definitely look at and understand this is a driver of business and growth and it's not just a PR stunt or anything like that. So I, th I think that's why ESG and DNI are so important. And uh, I think Asia, because of its complexity, has a lot to teach us. And talking about Asia, I think that because also the geopolitical situation that is uh, kind of like, you know, unraveling across uh, Europe and uh, certain other regions, uh, many international companies are looking uh, at Asia. Asia markets uh, have already been over the last time like drivers of growth, but in a certain way are looking to Asia in also different ways. Uh, what do you think that you know, are some of the tips to take advantage of the key characteristics of uh, Asia markets, such as Southeast Asia? Um, what can, you know, board members or advisors that listen to us can, uh, you know, uh, bring home from your knowledge of these markets? So I would say that following from the topic of DE and I, right, um, because a lot of countries and a lot of companies are looking to Asia as the next frontier of growth. And in fact, you know, with all the challenges right now in Europe and uh, uh, perhaps, you know, to a lesser extent in the US, there's a need to really diversify. And I would say that if you look at uh, talent as a portfolio, you really need to diversify your uh, talent portfolio as well. And, um, you know, Asia is a huge uh, reservoir of talent. And uh, I really subscribe to the, you know, belief that uh, talent is everywhere, especially in Asia, if you know how to uh, leverage and to capture and to optimize. So for places like, uh, uh, you know, in the Southeast Asia where, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of talent that's uh, in English speaking, uh, companies that are operating in the West right now need to be able to think, where can I be truly global, right? I mean, I work in companies that are seriously global and that's because it's been, you know, many years of intentional strategies to really move the HQ out of Europe or US, right? And to create multiple global hubs and I really think that that's the way to go because, um, you know, the pandemic is here uh, with us to stay for a while, um, you know, borders open for a period of time and then they close again. So this is going to be uh, what I say, a start, stop, start, stop affair, right? And therefore, you know, uh, we cannot believe that everybody will just um, be able to go to HQ, make that trip again and again, right? And, you know, go there for development programs, go there for meetings, etc. I think we need to definitely diversify the hubs where our leaders are globally distributed. Uh, there's a lot more diversity of cultures and not just, you know, to one location, right, where you actually go there and uh, do your piece or say your piece. Um, and I've seen, right, companies that are truly global with multiple hubs in Asia, in Europe, in US, right, they're able to capture the best. And when there's a good cross you know, pollination of talent, it really brings out, um, you know, some of the innovative ideas uh, and some of the, you know, I would say, uh, uh, I would say, you know, a new fresh uh, perspective around how to do business in this part of the world as well, where the growth is, right? And uh, these have really, um, I would say, you know, optimized and uh, benefited from those uh, benefits of operating in a very global space out of Asia being one of the global hubs. 
No, and I like that because also when we look at the cross-pollination, we can look also at the opposite. I was recently listening to a podcast by Bloomberg called Foundering, where they uh, map out the trajectory of, you know, uh, recent uh, uh, startups such as WeWork and, uh, well, not so recent Amazon. And one series of them is about TikTok. And TikTok did something very interesting, which was kind of like the opposite, an app from China really focusing on cross-pollinating with local U.S. influencers, with local U.S. marketing teams and stuff. So it was vice versa. The tech team was still in Asia, but to actually penetrate the U.S. market. So we'll see more and more of that. And of course, remote work accelerated by the pandemics has uh, uh, definitely uh, made this more and more possible or at least more accepted even in traditional companies. So I think these are issues at stake that are very interesting uh, when it comes to Again, one very interesting driver of growth that you surprisingly mentioned is also talent. Because you look at, you know, your HR background definitely points out to something that most executives sometimes don't think about, right? Uh, oftentimes we think about sales as drivers of growth, we think as new channels, new markets, but we don't think about talent as much as a driver of growth. And I agree with you, it is a very important one, likely one of the most important. And especially in a world that where digital transformation is putting a lot of pressure on our pool of talents in a sense that we need more and more tech people. Although we're not in a tech market, we all are becoming tech companies, right? Even if you're like in agriculture, you could be in finance sector, you could be in insurance, pharma, and so on. Everybody's looking for tech talent. A lot of them are in Asia, but not only, but in general, since everybody's looking for tech people now, there's a shortage of them. It's harder to hire and not only to hire, but to retain them because they get good proposals and offers the whole time. So based on your experience in tech, so how do you feel companies can improve? And at least, you know, even boards can, you know, design strategies at attracting and retaining better tech talents in their companies. I think, you know, I can speak to a few, uh, you know, cases of reference, right? Um, first of all, the lofty vision, mission, and the values of why you exist and the purpose of your enterprise is extremely powerful, right? So in HDX, you know, we exist to keep Singapore as the safest place on earth. I mean, that's a big vision. Yeah. And so it has been very successful in helping us to attract talent, okay? Now, um, after attracting them, you got to retain them. So we make sure our culture, um, our compensation, our leadership, our engagement, I mean, all those four things, right? They stack up, right? To provide uh, a more seamless, positive employee experience, right? Um, and, and so, you know, it, it's not just giving them great projects to do, although it's important. And a lot of the young people, right? The Gen Z and the millennials, they want to do all these exciting projects because, you know, in the tech space, if you're not doing the exciting projects, then, you know, they will go to another company that can provide them something. And, you know, when, once you do these fantastic, sexy projects, you can put it down on a CV, it will help you, right, to land on the next job. And I think that, you know, the experience, the technical and the exposure that you give to them is very, very key. Now, the other thing is this, they want to grow with you. So, you know, right now, of course, we are looking at, you know, career paths, uh, development opportunities, engagement, etc. So, so I think, you know, because our agency was born during the pandemic, we have a very interesting experience, I mean, over the last two years in doing that. And I think it's important for us to recognize that it's not just 
throwing a lot of money right at uh, you know attracting the talent because they don't stay with you after a while when they realize that hey I'm working right nine nine seven you know um, you know seven days a week perhaps yeah. twelve hours a day um, but yet you know I mean what's the purpose what's the meaning behind yeah. it and so therefore we get calls right from you know employees who have left us and they want to come back right because <laughs> we provide a very safe environment where you know your contributions are valued. People are decent and respectful, and we really, you know, work together. We are a friendly agency, um, so it's important. I mean, for any startup, for any company that's looking to hire tech talent, that you have some of these ingredients. And I would say that it's really hard work, right? Yeah. Um, it's hard work because everybody is uh, going after the same uh, small pool. Everybody's fishing, right, from the same small pool. Um, it's important also, I would say, um, coming from you know, some of the previous tech experience that I've had, um, that you also are cross-training your employees, okay? Because hmm. if everybody is looking to buy, right? I mean, there's not enough to buy. So you need to build, okay? Yeah. That's the other strategy. So you need to build and really have a roadmap in terms of how you can accelerate the build as well, right? Some of the, you know, I would say some of your low-hanging fruits, some of the more strategic activities, whether you can build the talent or you can actually acquire another company to accelerate the growth. Sometimes, I mean, that's the fastest to build as well and to buy, right? Um, I would say sometimes you can borrow as well. Like for example, in some, uh, if you have a big conglomerate, right? I mean, you could, you could actually think about how you can actually deploy, right? I mean, your talent from one subsidiary company to the next, right? And I think that sometimes, some of these big conglomerates, they think in terms of their silos, they are not willing to share amongst, you know, the big uh, portfolio of companies. So there's, um, I think, a lot more uh, call for people to step out of their comfort zone, you know, be willing to share talent, right, and be willing to think of unusual models to actually accelerate that journey. It's really interesting because um, you made a great example that reminded me of a case here in Brazil. A friend of mine, uh, he was the managing director of a big business unit uh, at uh, Boticario. is one of the biggest beauty companies uh, in Brazil. And uh, the company was struggling to find uh, tech talent and they were looking for a chief digital officer. I was at the time the chief digital officer at L'Oreal and I was monitoring that. And uh, what eventually the company did, it said, okay, why are we just looking for this talent outside of the company? It's not just because we don't have like real tech people that we cannot develop one of these. And so this guy eventually became the chief there, you know, uh, chief digital officer at this Boticario and eventually made a great success. Why? He was not a tech guy, as I'm not a tech guy either, uh, but eventually hard skills are easier to develop and train than soft skills. So that if that person has the right basis, the right, you know, like, uh, you know, skills in order to be flexible, understand about technology, think differently, well, you can train them and teach them and you have to have a roadmap for that. And oftentimes we struggle a lot looking outside of the company, but oftentimes we forget about the opportunity that we can give to great people within the company. And one thing because before jumping more towards the end of our conversation, I wanted to ask you a, a last question before. It is uh, a little bit about basically HTX. So, you know, it's a public uh, agency uh, from the Singapore government. And basically, I wanted to understand a little bit better. How do you feel? Are there any differences in sitting on a board of, you know, 
public sector rather than private sector. Because it's really interesting, I think, to our audience, most of them are getting ready to sit on boards in the private sector or already sitting on boards, on the, you know, mostly on the private sector. But what about the public sector? Uh, do you feel it's more dynamic, less dynamic? Sometimes it can be surprisingly dynamic, I guess, especially in Singapore. So tell us a little bit more about your experience in the, you know, sitting on boards in the public sector. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Actually, um, it's actually my first, I would say, um, you know, public sector board appointments, right? Um, um, uh, and I think that because it's the government, uh, you know, first of all, they will do a lot of security checks on you, right? Uh, Definitely. You <laughs> so your um, personal credibility is very important. Um, the other dimension is also when you, um, you know, sit on a public sector board, you're also bound by, you know, the Official Secrets Act, right? Um, and also some of the uh, code of conduct, etc. So um, it's extremely important that you are also representing, I would say, not just yourself, but you, you know, are privy to very important information that you cannot share publicly, okay? So that's the other piece uh, that's very key. Um, thirdly, uh, I think it provides the exposure to how um, public servants, you know, think and operate. And because in Singapore, we have many agencies and we tend to, you know, um, have a whole of government approach to solving some of the big challenges and the problems of the, of the day. Um, you can see that the public agencies, I mean, they, they also work with many other agencies. So it does not exist by itself. And in fact, sometimes HDX, you know, um, publicly, you know, will be roped in, right, to handle not just security matters, but also how to help Singapore to be successful from a tech perspective, right? So beyond its official remit, there's also other remits and goals that, uh, you know, the government has set out for uh, HDX. So you, you basically um, also try to also understand the way they think and the constraints that they have as public servants is quite different from a, you know, uh, I would say profit, uh, you know, enterprise yeah. where making money and, you know, making sure that they, they do business, mm -hmm. you know, um, in a more unconstrained way, right, yeah. compared to a public servant. So I think the nuances of that you need to be able to see that and therefore the, the the extent to which you're able to i would say challenge them push them you know to think differently and all that i think um we we got to understand the context of where they operate i think that that i see is a very big difference between that versus in uh profit board yeah definitely so carmen i totally agree with you um on a final note here um based on your experience I wanted to ask you if you want to share any piece of content, book, piece of advice besides your book, of course, that you might want to uh, remind uh, to the audience, but that really helped in your career, uh, either in HR or as board member, uh, so that you know our members can also leave this episode with uh, some bit of content to take home. Yeah, so during the pandemic, um, you know, as I was taking stock of what to do for the second uh, next phase, right, of my <laughs> career, uh, there was a very interesting book that I picked up, uh, you know, before the pandemic, and it was, uh, you know, quite uh, fortuitous, actually. Um, the book is called The Pause Principle, P-A-U-S-E, by okay. Kevin Cashman. Kevin Cashman today is a senior, you know, leader in uh, Confairy, 
And I felt that the book was very interesting because, you know, it encourages leaders to actually pause and to take stock, right, of where they are so that they know how they're going to go, uh, you know, into the future. And I, I found it a very uh, helpful, you know, tool um, to help me to think and to frame, uh, you know, really the next journey. And I know there are many uh, busy executives out there who don't have time, but I think the last two to three years have caused us to pause or to slow down. And in fact, this pause or slow down, um, you know, should become moments of truth for us, right? So that we begin to think about how do we reset, how do we repurpose, and how do we uh, retire, right? Not to retire, per se, from work and business, but to really, you know, reframe and to re-exprate for the future. Right? So I found that book very helpful for me. Um, I would say that, you know, um, that would be the book that I would uh, recommend for any Definitely. leader um, that's looking to transit because there are many uh, that have come to me and say, hey, how do I transit, right? Uh, I'm at the crossroad, what do I do? So I, I find that that book to be quite helpful, actually, to pause and to rethink. Exactly. And a lot of our audience is definitely living and going through this moment. Recall us the name, The Pause Factor? The Pause Principle Sorry. by Kevin, Kevin Cashman. That's -A -S -H -M -A -N. great. C-A-S-H-M-A-N. Kevin, K-E-V-I-N. Kevin Cashman. We'll put the, the full name and, uh, and the link to the book uh, in the description of the episode for who might be interested. Um, Carmen, now we, we, you know, like very quickly, uh, time flew, right? The conversation was so great that we actually ended, you know, our discussion. We came to the end uh, of our episode. I really wanted to thank you for your availability, for all of your content, uh, for your sympathy. Uh, it was fun, the conversation. And uh, also keep up engaging the VAB community in Asia. We're very proud of what you're doing and of you joining here at VAB. And so... Uh, Thanks for that. And I really wanted to thank you for being on the episode as well. Thank you, Andrew. I'm happy to be part of the VAB community. Look forward to more interactions with you. Definitely so. Thanking you again and hope also to welcome you back soon to our VAB podcast. And now that we've reached the end, I really hope that everybody you know, listening enjoyed the episode and be sure to expect more and more high quality content over the next ones with more guests coming to share their knowledge and ideas. So stay tuned. And if you enjoyed the episode as well, don't forget to share it with your colleagues, friends, family, whomever you think will benefit from this great content. That's it from now, from the VAB podcast and the VAB team and see you in the next episode. Thank you all.